Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail... I didn't know anyone outside of the criminal world. I found it hard to relate to anyone outside of the criminal world. They come out of prison often in a worse position than they went in. They've done the crime, paid their time, and they come out and they serve another sentence, and it's called a silent sentence. It's the sentence of judgment, stigma, and bias. What's it like to get out of prison? A prison's doing enough to get inmates ready for life on the other side of the wire. I look at a report that shows many prisoners rack up big debts when they're in jail, plus the agency that helps them find work, a home and other life basics. But first, David Obeda is a 501 deportee turned podcaster. He was sent back to New Zealand in 2018. And we should point out that the experience of a 501 is different, often more difficult, than that of an inmate on release here. My last sentence over there, I served four and a half years, so I was a repeat offender in Australia. I had served a, um, a few sentences, but the, the last one I served, I was deported back to, to New Zealand. So the process for that is they come and get you at three in the morning. You get uh, put over to like Border Force. It's pretty harsh stuff, um, and mainly because you know you're being walked through the the terminal with handcuffs, and then once you get out, you have to go for a police interview. So the police are waiting for you on your arrival because when you get when you come back, you're uh, immediately put onto like probation or parole. It's, it's a tough situation when you get deported because when I first come back here, you didn't even get any money. Like now, I know that uh, you're entitled to steps to freedom. So that, that's something here in New Zealand where when people get out of prison, they get like 300 bucks or something like that. Mm. But when I came back, we, we didn't even get that. So you're almost coming back here with just the clothes on your back. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Presumably you arrived at Auckland Airport. Yeah. yeah. What, what did you have? So you, you can only wear the clothes that you got on and the little bag of you know letters and stuff that I had from prison. Mm. Um, and that was pretty much it when you walk through. I mean, I, I was blessed enough that I had my dad here. And uh, so when I came back here, I went and stayed with my dad. But if you've got nowhere to stay, um, they'll put you in, you know, emergency housing. And I don't know, I don't know what, how much you know about emergency housing, but they're not nice places. Because I work sort of in rehabilitation now, and I used to work with Grace Foundation, we come across a lot of, like, other deportees and stuff. And I mean, um, they were telling me about coming back to emergency housing. And I mean, you're pretty much walking into a place. I mean, there's people passed out in the corridors. Um, there's people openly using meth and stuff like that. So that's that's the sort of environment that a deportee is coming back to here in New Zealand if they've got no support. Mm. So, I mean, I, I warn people who are in Australia that are being prepared to come back here. I just tell them if you've got no support here, it's an uphill battle. Like, if you want to come here and, and do the right thing and turn your life around, you're, you're going to have to fight for it. I remember the first time that I went to a probation meeting, you know, I was only a couple of days out. And, um, I mean, she could she was looking at me and she could tell that I wasn't right. You know, I was, well, because I was in a huge depression coming back here, you know. I, like, she just straight up looked at me and she's like, are you all right? Mm. Like, how do you even answer that? But then there's no sort of offer of, well, do you want to see a psychologist or, or do you want to see a counsellor or anything like that? Like, there's no sort of, like, that's not the corridor. When you, when you speak to probation, it's just, 
you know, where are you living? Where are you working? It's just a purely just to monitor you. It's got nothing to do with like, well, hey, are you all right? Do you want to speak to someone? Because I would have loved that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. So you say you love being back here now. But how long did that take for you to settle back in? Man, it, it took a couple of years. Don't get me wrong. I got straight back into mahi and stuff like that when I when I came back here because my dad got me a job and that was a blessing. Because I had no one to talk to or anything like that, I just I started self-medicating with alcohol and drugs and then I got hooked. You know, I became an alcoholic and that was for about three years. I didn't know anyone outside of the criminal world. I found it hard to relate to anyone outside of the criminal world. So for me, yeah, finding my faith and then being able to find a com- new community of friends and things like that, that's what changed the game for me. Yeah. But in those initial stages, not knowing anyone outside of that life, not knowing how to you know, adapt to those sorts of people, that was a huge, that's definitely the huge challenge. Our biggest struggle is housing. Our people coming out into the community find it difficult to get accommodation because they already carry the label of being an ex-prisoner, an ex-deportee. So our community goes, well, I don't want them in my backyard. So that's the whole NIMBYs. And then we have the notes and I don't want them over there either. That's the silent sentence that Tuialu talks about. She heads Tepa, an agency that helps prisoners reintegrate into society. I have the privileged role of leading an organisation that is committed to disrupting the intergenerational pipeline of incarceration. And is it one of the many agencies that help prisoners reintegrate? Historically we've come from an organisation called Prisoners Aid and so this organisation has its genesis going way back to the 1800s. And how are you funded? 90% of our funding comes through government contracts and the other perhaps 10% is philanthropic funding. Most of our contracts are with the Department of Corrections and they are definitely reintegration contracts. When do you get involved when a person leaves prison? You talked about 501s, let's put them over to the side and we'll come back to them. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk about prisoners that are coming out of New Zealand prisons because the context is totally different uh, between a deportee and a domestic prisoner. So depending on the service, if it is a person who's serving a long sentence, we go inside, we interview, we assess their suitability to come into our service. We do all of that and then one Once they're released, they already know they're coming to us. So on their release day, we're there picking them up, and that service provides them with immediate need on release, food, clothing, shelter. And we do all of that with everyone we work with. But in particular long servers, we bring them into what's called our supported accommodation service, where they come into homes that we either own renting or leasing and we bring them into a wraparound service where we will navigate them over the next three months sometimes longer could be six months could be a year until um, they feel strong enough to go out on their own we have another service which is for our short servers anyone under two years and 
there's quite a lot coming through that service. So we do the same thing. We pick them up from the prison or they'll find their way to us. And then we're providing them with all the basic things they need to transact in society on release. Things you and I take for granted. So yes, bank accounts, IRD numbers, driver's licence, benefits and then accommodation. But you need the tools to be able to transact in society. You cannot get accommodation without a bank account, without an IRD number. So all of those, what we call transactional things, are done immediately. The, the sooner you can do that and settle someone, then you can start working on their longer-term goals. What do you see in people coming out of prison? What, what are the, some of the common things that they are facing? What we see is that people being released from prison have unaddressed intergenerational trauma. So unless that trauma is addressed, you are not going to change that person's life course trajectory because their life course trajectory is already mapped out for them. It is going to say that you're seven times more likely to be profiled by police. You're eight times more likely to be sentenced to a higher sentence. So people being released from prison are coming out with all of these predetermined life course trajectories because the system already has mapped it out for them. So they've got unaddressed trauma, unaddressed alcohol and drug issues, and what we are doing is initially addressing their immediate need, right? And yep, there's not enough accommodation. There's not enough, you know, houses, homes, and there's been research done years ago which has identified that the two linchpins that inform and underpin successful reintegration is housing and employment. Well, if you can't get housing, how can you get a job? That, that is the other thing that David was talking about. And maybe this is where we come and bring the 501s in because he says they basically have two options. When I came back here, my dad was flatting, you know, so I had to share the, the same room with my dad, you know. But when I think between the option of that and going to emergency housing, which is the only viable option for you if you're coming back here and you've got no support, aside from living on the street, it's just, it's almost impossible in those emergency housing because you're just surrounded by, by people on drugs. Like I said, the, the biggest challenge is you have to surround yourself with people who aren't in that life. Yeah. You know, if, if you're surrounded by people who are using drugs and stuff like that, it's only going to be a matter of time before it comes off on you. If they've got no connections mm. here, mm. they go into emergency housing mm -hmm. or they go into probably a gang house. If a guy's thinking, man, I need my own place, I can't stay here anymore, um, it's too hard. Mm. From there... The only option is, all right, well, uh, actually, I know old mate who's just patched up. I know that if I hook up with them that I can get that money that I need to get out of this situation. But then, you know, as, the, as it goes, once you're, <laughs> once you're in that world, it's, almost, it's very hard to get out of it. So what you're talking about with your kind of housing, that's not 
that's not emergency housing? Oh, no, no. Ours is what's called supported housing. So when you look at the deportees, their story's different, right? So they're coming with trauma of being kicked out of a country where they've contributed to, paid taxes, had a great job, you know, all of that. They're coming back to Aotearoa, and for a lot of them, they're not connected. And if they're not connected, that makes it a lot harder for them to come back and find where they're going to connect to. So we do have some homes for our deportees to go into, but let's be clear, with the lack of accommodation out there right now, the crisis that we're in, it's either emergency housing or a boarding house until we can, they, we can get them into employment and help navigate them into their own flat or get them on the register for social housing. And I, I guess all of this is it's their choice, right? It's their choice to come to you. They can decline our service. Yes, they can. So our service is voluntary. It's not mandatory. At any time, someone can exit our service. So that's what it's like coming out of prison. Yes, there's support, but the housing crisis makes things really difficult. But there's something else that many inmates take into prison, money problems. Victoria University senior law lecturer Victoria Stace has written about it in a report called Paying the Price. People going into prison, they'll have debts. So there's a range of debts that are quite common, for example, government debt, there's likely to be inland revenue debt, which could be child support debt, overdue taxes, student loans, unpaid fines. And on top of that, there's a whole range of private debt that a person going into prison is quite likely to have. So credit card debt, if they do have a bank account and they have a credit card, there could be um, high purchase or financing debt. There might be unpaid phone bills. There might be unpaid power bills. Nobody has responsibility for finding out what prisoners' financial situation is on the way into prison. No one tells their creditors that they're not going to be paying those instalments of whatever it is, the high purchase payment or whatever, for some period of time, so the debt mounts up. And some of those debts incur nasty penalties if you don't pay on time. Are you saying that, you know, when someone is sent to prison, that there maybe should be a checklist to go through, you know, yeah. do they owe, and that that doesn't happen right now? No, it doesn't. I know of one financial mentor that works with a particular prison in Auckland, and he, he has a checklist of things that he goes through, um, which has things like, you know, are you paying child support? I'm going to contact and land revenue and get that suspended. Are you paying fines? Are you paying MSD debt? But that doesn't happen for everybody, and it certainly doesn't happen as a matter of course. And as I understand it, even if they have a bank account, they may not be able to access it while they're in prison. Definitely difficult. No access to internet. Not allowed a phone. So you do have a communal phone, which is going to be very challenging. You know, you've got to, you're in a public area so other people can hear you. And if you do actually get in touch with a bank, there'll be wait times, you know, you put on hold. So it's not easy. One of the things we recommend is that there should be a universal number that you're allowed to call because prisons are only allowed to call certain numbers when they're in prison. So one of those should be linked to a bank or, or some sort of central point where they can sort out issues like this. You can send a letter by regular post. That is the most common way that we know of that people try and contact their bank.
So what happens when that person leaves prison? They might have a debt that's much bigger than when they went into prison. Yeah, so likely to be in a worse financial situation in terms of the debt that they owe when they come out if, if no effort has been made to try and suspend their obligations while they've been incarcerated. In Australia, they actually pay that off for you while you're in prison. Do they? Yeah, so in, in, well, in Victoria anyway. So when you're, if you go into prison and you've got any sorts of fines, what they do is they come and see you and they accumulate all the fines together and you pay it while you're, you pay it off by doing your time. Ah. So, I mean, if they're not doing that here in New Zealand, that would be a massive, that would be a huge one is, is, is setting something like that up because, um, yeah, like well, when you do your time in Australia, you're pretty much guaranteed, depending on how long you're doing that, you're going to be getting out debt free. They have access to a Steps to Freedom grant, which is worth $350. It's a one-off amount of money that they need to apply for. Um, And it can be for things like, you know, housing or bond or rent or Mm -hmm. food or clothing, anything, really. If they've got a debt, I mean, it's just hard to imagine how they cope immediately. Now, yeah, that $350 is the, as you say, the Steps to Freedom payment that they get on the way out. Subtracted from that is any amount that they've got in their prison trust account. So you're allowed to have up to $200 in your prison trust account. So, for example, if you've got someone on the outside that can put some money into your trust account, it means that you can go to the prison shop and buy things. So if you've got any money still sitting in that account when you leave, that comes off your 350. Anyhow, 350, yeah, I know it's not going to go very far if you've got to find somewhere to live, basically whatever it is that you need to do when you come out. Some financial mentors said that if they can't get their benefits straight away, that's a real problem because they need an income. And if they've got no income, their options are very limited. It seems to me that you need to facilitate access to government assistance, which is probably the job seeker benefit, as quickly as possible so that they can be independent and live autonomously. And that is where the bank account comes in because you need a bank account to get your benefit. Otherwise, you can get it paid to a mate or a relative, but that is not ideal. Is that part of your recommendations in this report, that they have what, like, automatic access to a bank account when they leave prison? Well, what we say should happen is that because it's, there's a few steps that have to be gone through to get the bank account set up, that those steps should be gone through before the person leaves prison. So you've you've got the ID documents, you've actually done the application to the bank, you've got the bank account number and the bank card, and you've got it with the prisoner's property that can be given to them on the day they re- get released. Are the banks willing to work around this? Mm. Westpac seems to be the most willing. None of the other banks offer a service of setting up an account before a person has actually left prison. The person has to be in front of the bank to open a bank account. You can't have someone open a bank account for someone else when the bank hasn't seen them. So those are bank rules, not corrections rules. Although all the ones we spoke to said that once they're out, 
and they've got the ID and they walk into a branch, they would be prepared to give them an account assuming there's no other hurdles, for example, they've been trespassed from that bank in the past or, or something like that. But the only bank that is prepared to look at an application while a person's still in prison at this point is Westpac. Hmm. And there are still some, quite a lot of steps to be gone through, even with the Westpac scheme. Is that right? Like, can you give me an example? Well, you've still got to have the two standard forms of ID. You can't just say, oh, look, this person's in prison. We know who they are. The prison file makes it clear that this person is so-and-so. No, you've got to have your birth certificate. You've got to have your Kiwi Access Card with the photo on it. So you've got to apply for your birth certificate. You've got to get your Kiwi Access Card. You've got to somehow get a photograph, which is tricky, because most prisoners can't get into town to do that. If they had a bank account, if they had their ID sorted out before they left prison, how much difference would it make in terms of them really getting back into the community and not being at so much risk of getting back into crime? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question. I can't tell you the answer, but I can tell you that studies have been done in the UK and America uh, where they looked at the difference in uh, reincarceration rates between people who had access to banking services immediately on release and those who didn't. And the recidivism rates were significantly lower for people who had banking services sorted for them prior to release. So I think it is an important and key component of the whole package of reintegration. Is New Zealand far behind other countries on this? The UK is way ahead of us. They've had a program in place which started in about 2005 and it became part of mainstream corrections policy in 2014 when it was taken over by the government whereby every prisoner is given the opportunity to set up a bank account prior to release with one of the major banks. So we can earn a lot from that. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benj. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Tui Alu, David Obida and Victoria Stace. Kakite. Kite.